everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Diane Wilson. Diane is a fourth-generation shrimper and a mother of five turned environmental activist. She began fishing the bays off Sea Drift, Texas at the age of eight, and by 24 she was a boat captain. After the waters she fished became so polluted by the chemical plants on the bay that she lost her livelihood, she took on three petrochemical giants practically single-handedly. She has survived threats, thugs, and jail, and she's gone on to become a feisty activist for the people and the planet. She's a co-founder of Code Pink and has won multiple awards for her passionate fight for social justice. Diane is the author of An Unreasonable Woman, a true story of shrimpers, politicos, polluters, and the fight for Sea Drift, Texas. And today we're going to talk about her latest book, Diary of an Eco Outlaw, An Unreasonable Woman Breaks the Law for Mother Earth. Hey, Diane, I am so delighted to meet you and welcome you to New Consciousness Review. Well, thank you very much, Miriam. I'm real delighted to be here. You know, Diane, many of us see injustice all around us, and we may wring our hands, but very few people have the gumption that you have to go out and do something. Where did that spirit come from? Well, I, uh, I think it had to do with the way I was raised. Uh, I'm one of the few lucky people, and some people may not think it's lucky, but I'm one of the few lucky people that I've spent my entire life in one place on the water. Uh, my family's been fishing around this little uh, place on San Antonio Bay for a hundred years now. And uh, I, I know I had a lawyer tell me one time, he said, uh, I had a sense of place. And mm -hmm. I think that's very fortunate. And, and also, uh, I... I was so, uh, I was a, a loner, and I was very, very quiet, and I loved the water. And I can remember, I can, and I can vividly remember this, going to the bay because, you know, um, the shrimp boats come in in the evening, and everybody, uh, the whole family goes to the bay, to, to the boats. And I remember going to the bay, and I could see the bay, and she was a woman. I mean, I literally could see her and and I, I remember she was an old woman and she had this long gray hair and I remember how her dress kind of flowed up into the tide and uh, and I especially remembered her personality because it was like a grandmother and she really liked for me to come down and see her and so to me that water was real. It wasn't a commodity. It wasn't a resource. It wasn't a uh, tangible material I can make a profit on. It was real. It was alive. And, uh, you know, I, I, I felt like it was truly uh, my, my grandmother. And, and when I began my fight rather late in life, I had that passion and, uh, and that has what uh, started me, and that is what has kept me this long, quite frankly. My goodness. Uh, what happened to the water? What happened over the years that, that 
turned you around to become this activist? Well, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I, the, the first chemical plants uh, came in probably about the time I was born. But the, but the thing that is, is I'm right around the Texas Gulf Coast, and, and it was very, very subtle. I mean, they were huge plants when they came in, but there was so little uh, media attention on them. So there was very few stories about uh, any kind of uh, problem with contamination. So you you never you never uh, heard about them. You just saw them when you would go out tripping. You could look out there on the horizon and you could see all of these. You know, and sometimes they almost look like fairy castles in the evening because they would start lighting up and, and the, the horizon would be filled with these towers and these pipes and these, these big uh, round tanks with these chlorine, but you never heard about it. And, uh, uh, you know, and by the time I started uh, uh, being a shrimp captain, you know, you started noticing changes in the bay. You didn't know, you didn't know why, because industry did not report anything to its neighbors, absolutely zero. So I, I remember uh, we would have these green tides that was like a pea green soup. You would have a brown tide that it was literally like velvet was covering the bay. And you would see fish. I mean, they would look like little uh, light bulbs going off because these tiny little fish were sticking their heads trying to get oxygen. And then there was a red tide where you had, uh, I mean, if you would put a boat through the red tide, the fumes would blow up and they would sicken you on a boat. And, uh, and shrimping started really, really getting bad. And I, I had a hard time uh, supporting all my kids. So I started working at this fish house and, you know, that's where all the shrimpers bring their shrimp in. And uh, I, I would have these fishermen that were up the river, uh, you know, fish, fishing for catfish or redfish or whatever. And they would, they would bring these fish in. They said, hey, all I did was reach in and picked up this fish because it was just kind of, it was rolling in the water. And alligators were rolling in the water. And they were on the surface. And they were acting very strange. And they didn't know what was going on. And, and then all our dolphins started dying. I mean, we had like 300-pound dolphins that were just dead. They were everywhere, you know. There were more buzzards around the bays than there were seagulls because they were going after all these dolphins. And it was the largest dolphin die-off in the Mammal Stranding Network's history. And, and they are the only uh, agencies that is allowed to actually uh, uh, number the amount of fatalities with dolphins. And I mean, they were, they were everywhere and, and people had no idea why. And it was about at that time when I had one of my shrimpers come into the fish house and he kind of pitched an article at me and it was an Associated Press story and it was about uh, the toxic release inventory and the toxic release inventory uh, was the first time ever industry in the United States had to actually tell what was coming out their smokestacks, their incinerators, those discharges directly into our bays and our rivers. They had to say 
what was in them and how many pounds was in them. And the injection wells, because they put waste 2,000 feet down, and, and they say for the next 2,000 years, that stuff is not going to move. And then you have landfills that were 50 feet high, and they would have to say what's in the landfills. And my tiny little county, I mean, the entire county wasn't 15,000 people, the entire totality of it. And we were the number one county in the nation for toxic disposal. We had half the toxic waste that was generated in the state of Texas right in my tiny little county. And that information, it literally blew me over, quite frankly. And I'm a... I'm a real, by nature, I'm real quiet and I don't like talking and uh, I don't like getting in crowds, but uh, that information just, I, 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 could, I could not not do something. I think if I had not did something, I would have lost the best part of myself. And so I acted totally out of character and I just, you know, and, and the first thing I ever did is all I did was pick up a phone and call a meeting. And I mean, from there on, it was like this snowball rolling down a hill. <laughs> what was the response to that meeting? Well, I, I, I tell you what, I, that that was almost surprising as uh, reading about that article, because there was such a backlash. I mean, an immediate backlash. And, and see, you know, you, you got to realize down fish house is smelly. There's shrimp smells. There's, you know, hard heads floating in the water sometimes. And it's, and it's not a real pleasant smell to some folks who aren't used to it. And within uh, two days, I had the bank president was down at the fish house in a three-piece suit. He come down in his little black sedan and he come up to me and he said, uh, Diane, I want to know if you're fixing to start a vigilante group, fixing a roast industry alive. And I mean, I, I, I really almost laughed in his face. I could not believe he was saying that to me. And, you know, and especially since I hadn't did anything. And then I had the, the, the city sent down the city secretary and, uh, she was trying to get me to get the meeting out of Sea uh, Drift, and matter of fact, not have it at all. And then I had the economic development. He started calling my brothers and say, get your sister to quit doing what she's doing. And, and matter of fact, he told them, tell her to be a good citizen and just drop this whole issue. And uh, I, was, I, was, I was flabbergasted by the reaction is, why? Why would city and elected officials try to stop information about contamination being heard? But they were uh, adamantly opposed to it. Yeah, it, it just seems like our society has only one measure of what it means to be a good citizen or what success is, and that is money. And if the money is flowing oh, into the yeah. Party, that's, that that's absolutely the was an economic bonanza. That's what everybody said. This is an economic bonanza, and by speaking up, I was going to ruin their bonanza. And I and so they, you know, they started calling me an hysterical woman, and then they started saying, 
well, well, dang, she's a woman, so somebody's really got to be behind her. And then they say, well, heck, she's a shrimper, and, they, you know, shrimpers don't know much, so who's really behind this woman? And, and, uh, and a lot of those uh, businessmen, they got it in their head that I had been hired by the state of Louisiana to kick the projects out of Texas so they can get sent down to Louisiana. And they honestly... <laughs> We're believing that kind of, you know, it, it, it was crazy. I, 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 I could not, I could not believe it. I had never saw anything like it. It was like I had stepped into this bizarre zone where I, I, I didn't understand it, but I, I, you know, I started understanding it pretty fast though. Yeah, you got a really intensive education in a short time. So yeah, hang on just a minute. We're, <laughs> we're going to take a short break now, and then we'll be right back with our guest, Diane Wilson. And we're back with Diane Wilson discussing her book, Diary of an Eco Outlaw. So, Diane, before the break, we were talking about how the, uh, the local uh, community, the, the bankers and the, the politicians were coming after you uh, for speaking out. So you had them on the one hand, and then you had the backlash from the chemical corporations, the, the higher-ups and the PR ladies and everything on the other hand. So was anyone supporting you? Well, I, I actually had one lady at the fish house that was working with me. We were the only two women working at a fish house, probably in the entire Gulf of Mexico. And, uh, and, and she, was, she was the only woman that ever encouraged me. And uh, uh, I, I, she was always very reluctant. You know, if I had to stand up at a press conference or a, or a demonstration, uh, she was a little hard about uh, showing up there. But she was always encouragement but she was the only one and you know uh in the beginning i i had uh, i had a lawyer out of houston that uh you know he said he uh you know he he, he thought it was a great cause and so he said he was going to be pro bono meaning he was going to work for free uh with me but mm -hmm. it got so intense that in the middle of it my lawyer quit me and started working for the company and that was that was probably one of the uh, darkest days I ever had when my uh, when my only lawyer I had would start working for the other side. And, uh, you know, and, and my family was uh, opposed to it. Uh, the fishermen were opposed to it. It was and, and the fishermen, it was uh, it was apathy and it was uh, they believe. And, and really, this is something fishermen, I think, across the whole United States believe, is that their time is coming to an end. They uh, believe that uh, it won't be very far in the future till they will not be able to make a living as fishermen, as commercial fishermen. And, uh, and so I know the fishermen in Sea Drift is like, they did not believe you could fight City Hall. They thought these are my last days on the bay, and I don't even think about what's going on. So just leave me alone and let me go out there on that bay. And uh, you, you know, with and with my with my family, it was, and and even with the fishermen, it was this uh, this being a woman 
just being a woman out front and speaking out, I mean, that upset people in a big way. And so it wasn't just an environmental matter. It was a gender battle. And it was a, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a working class battle because a lot of people, they would look at me like I'm a fisherman and fishermen, you know, they, they, they've got this horrible uh, uh, a stereotype about fishermen that they're ignorant, that they're rapists and pillagers and outlaws and that they're not very smart. <laughs> like pirates. <laughs> yes. And, 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 and so I would have all of that working against me. And so I was, I was, uh, that's why I was doing things. I was, I was, it was a lonely battle. And that's why when I started finally doing some of my out of the box actions, I had to think of actions I could do by myself because there was nobody else. Ah, I see. So uh, tell us, tell us briefly about how you got involved with Bhopal and Union Carbide and that um, was, was climbing the tower at Dow the first sort of uh, over-the-top act that you've done? Uh, oh, no. That, I did a few <laughs> over-the-top acts before I did that one. But, but my relationship with Bhopal, it was actually Union Carbide. I got a Union Carbide plant right outside of Cedar Rift. It was, it would, came into Cedar Rift about the same time I was born, you know, around like 1948, 1950. And, uh, uh, it had been there my whole life, right on side, right beside the water and it had been discharging all of their waste into our bays. And, uh, in, in 1989, uh, when I started, uh, my activism when I found out we were number one in the nation, it was uh, the Union Carbide plant in Cedrift had been named the safest plant in Texas. And this was, this was uh, bestowed upon them by the uh, Texas Chemical Council, who is an association of all the chemical plants in Texas. And they just loved to pick themselves for having safe plants. And so they made Union Carbide safest plant in Texas. And about a week later, that plant blew sky high and sent shrapnel like the size of a Cadillac screaming across the, the fields and into the marshes. And, and, uh, uh, and there were like 180 workers that were injured and one of the workers died and it was right after that explosion that a man showed up in my yard and I actually thought he was Union Carbide just trying to uh, figure out what I knew. And, and, and actually it was Union Carbide's biggest nightmare because his name was Ward Morehouse and he had been fighting for most, I mean, fighting Union Carbide and tracking them and writing about them since the 1984 incident in Bhopal, India, which is where 40 tons of isol cyanate um, blew out of a experimental pesticide plant of Union Carbide and probably killed around 8,000 people in uh, one night. And so that man, Ward at Morehouse, had been tracking them. And so when Union Carbide blew up, he showed up at my doorstep and said, 
Diane, you want to go to India? And <laughs> I mean, I, I, I thought about it about 30 seconds and I said, why, sure. And, and, and I did. And I, and, and I had no idea what I could do in India. I really did. I do not, I am not a big planner. I don't have all these little big uh, sheets of paper that kind of say what I want to do and what's the objective. I, I, I don't move like that. I I'm kind of move from the heart and in real intuitive. And, and so I just, I just did. I just went. And, uh, you know, and me, I've hardly ever been out of the state of Texas. And here I was flying to India. And, uh, and what I found in India was something that has uh, probably marked me for the rest of my life. And it is why I am a lifetime supporter for justice in Bhopal is because, uh, you know, this was like uh, in 1991 when I went over there, that was like, like eight years after the incident. But uh -huh. it was like, it had just happened because the Union Carbide facility, the plant was still there. It was like the workers had just walked out. The contamination in the water was still there. The contamination on the ground was still there. The pipes were still there. And, it, and, and the people, the people were still dying. There were 30 people dying a month from that explosion. And uh, I know when I went there, uh, there was going to be a, a tribunal, which is, I think it was kind of based on the Nuremberg trials where you, where there were witnesses testifying about what happened. And I remember there were so many people, their eyes were covered because they were, they were blinded and they were just matter running and their, and their lungs had been affected. So they couldn't move and they couldn't walk and they couldn't work. And, uh, and, and probably uh, the most poignant thing that ever happened is uh, uh, there was a bus that took a bunch of us witnesses to this big uh, coliseum to testify every day. And one morning, this little Indian man in a little white shorts and a white shirt chased the bus down and he threw this little handkerchief through the window and, and it like hit me in the head. And so I looked at this handkerchief and I, and it was tied up and I opened it up and inside was 10 photographs and they were black and white photographs of these tiny, tiny little babies. And each one was uh, on a separate uh, white sheet, except there was a smear of this dark smear and you couldn't tell whether it was blood or whether it was mud and I could not get over those pictures and I, I'm like and so I was asking the people on the bus is like who are these babies what what are these pictures about and and actually some of the uh some of the women saw it and they refused to look anymore and and there was this this man and he said uh he said the night of the uh incident when all of that uh that insecticide spilled out into the community is that everybody started running and like children were left and people got tore apart and some got trampled and there was a lot of pregnant women and they had spontaneous abortions and these were those aborted babies. Mm -hmm. And he said, those are the lucky ones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So that stayed with me. Yeah. And when you got back to Texas, uh, uh, there was a kind of a reluctant, if persistent, little stream of workers from the chemical plants who were talking to you and telling you about their illnesses as well and, and their horror stories. Yeah, and, and, and the interesting thing about that is always, you can ask any environmental activist and they will always tell you that if you're working especially in a community, that if there's an activist who starts saying anything about the companies, immediately the corporation, the management will pit the workers against this activist and they'll say, you know, they'll even send out these internal memos to all their workers. They'll say, here's this activist out there and she is trying to uh, destroy this plant. She's trying to shut it down. She's going to try to send it to Mexico and she is going to make you lose your job. And so they really, really work at um, bringing up this wall of opposition. And in many of the hearings that I had to go to, sometimes the company would bus, one time they bus loaded seven bus loads of, P of workers to the hearing. I was the only person opposing it, and there were seven bus loads of workers sitting right across from me. And I know one time I did a demonstration, and the only ones I had for my demonstrators was, quite frankly, my children. And I had a, a friend, a woman friend, and she had a couple of kids. So we had 12. And the company paid the workers overtime to come out there and pick it against me. And uh, so for $50, I had 300 workers against me and my children out there. But... But the irony of is that it was these very same workers who, when they had to have help, they came to me because there is no help for them. There is none in OSHA, you know, uh, occupational health and safety. There is none from the corporation. There is none from the state and environmental, I mean, the federal agencies. There's none from the elected officials or the legal system. And they are, I remember one guy who, uh, he was actually a supervisor. And, you know, and, and he had found out the company was buying off a senator and, you know, and the plant manager, when he found out he had all this information about this bought-off senator, he said, uh, I can arrange to have you killed. And, and it scared the supervisor so much, he went to the DA in town, the district attorney, and the district attorney said, well, the company is going to give the sheriff a computer system, so we really can't do anything about that. Oh, and then so he went to the Texas Rangers and the Texas Ranger said, sounds like good business sense. And besides, it's your word against theirs. So the guy came to me, and they always came with guns, and they were always carrying tape recorders. And mm -hmm. they were always taping me because they couldn't trust nobody. Yeah, well, listen, we, we have to take a little break now, but then we'll be right back with Diane Wilson. And we're back with Diane Wilson discussing her book, Diary of an Eco Outlaw. Um, you know, Diane, before the break, you <clears throat> were talking about the threat of a company 
uh, towards its employees saying, oh, well, we'll shut down the plant and we'll move it to Mexico. Now, I mean, I can't think of anything more cynical. It's like um, the, the Mexican workers won't be as fussy as you are about safety. They don't oh, yeah. mind if they're being poisoned. They are so desperate for work that they will put up with whatever crappy conditions we give them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what they said. You're going to force us. You know, that woman's going to force us to go to Mexico because she's uh, insisting that we abide by all these uh, uh, rules. And so, you know, the only way we can make a profit is we got to go to Mexico. And they would. They would tell their workers that and the workers would just be in a tizzy. Okay. So speaking of trade-offs, you were prepared to do whatever it took, including going to jail. And uh, it's very ironic that um, Mr. Anderson, who was the CEO of Union Carbide in India, managed to avoid going to jail for killing 8,000 people and maiming 500,000. But you were put in jail for leading a protest against this. Well, uh, it was the... uh Longest I had ever uh, been in jail. I've, I've been arrested a lot of times, and usually when you get arrested, you spend you know anywhere from two to three days to a week in jail. And this one, uh, matter of fact, uh, when when they sentenced me, they said they they were so mad at me. They said they just wished there was a higher offense, and they would have given me that offense. But I had to spend 180 days in jail. And uh, I uh, spent some of it in Harris County, which is Houston, which is probably one of the deadliest jails in the United States. I think uh, more people died in Harris County jails than was in that year of Abu Ghraib when they talked about the mountain. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Wow. Yes. More people die in Harris County jail. And, uh, you know, these just unexplained sudden deaths and the suicides and the chokeholds and, and workers not, I mean, uh, prisoners not getting their medication, you'd be surprised how many deaths are associated with people who go in for something as little as traffic, uh, not paying a traffic ticket, not having your, uh, uh, you know, your, your, your insurance. And you can go in if you're sick, if you've got diabetes, if you have epilepsy, if you've got a heart condition, as like, you tell me why it is that the minute you step into these jailhouses, and I'm not even talking prison, I'm talking county jails, that people lose their lives because they refuse to they refused to do anything. You know, I, I know for me, when when, when I was there, uh, I, it, it was so awful. I eventually, to keep myself sane, because there's a, a great amount of boredom. There is absolutely nothing to do. There were like 12 of us in like a 10-foot cement block. We never got out. We never exercised. Uh, there was, they weren't allowed books. They said if we got books, uh, they were a health hazard. And you figure that one out, a health hazard. And so there was absolutely nothing you could do. And if, uh, if a woman got sick and there was uh, 
I know uh, that staph infection was mm -hmm. rampant through the jails. And some of those staph infections are so, so bad that you can get a staph infection on your head and it can go to your brain and you can be dead within like 12 days. And, uh, and they, they, for whatever reason, I don't know whether it's a, a system of brutality or non-compassion or I, I can't figure out why it is so brutal is that uh, there are so many people that are dying because they, they won't even give them their, uh, their, their medicine. They won't let them see doctors. I know there was uh, one young woman and uh, they uh, arrested her and, and, and they weren't supposed to arrest her because she had a, a real uh, bad uterine condition and she was like six months pregnant. And it said on her, I guess she had probation, and it said, do not arrest this woman until she's delivered. Well, they, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. And they threw in jail. And with the conditions of the way jails are, the, the cold and the cement and, the, and the, the stress from being in a cement block with women crowded around you and... Uh, uh, you know, and no one uh, caring a flip about your health, you know, the, the woman started going in labor and they refused to believe the woman was in labor, you know, and they said, well, show us your blood. You know, they want her to show them her blood to prove that she was in labor. And then they ended up sticking her in isolation and her baby came breech and it died. And there is a lot of that that goes on in these jails. It's very, very brutal. I remember he, uh, interviewing a guy who also did a lot of work with uh, the jails. And he pointed out that jails are simply big business. That uh, oh, they, you know, they keep their costs, and it, they're very analogous to the chemical companies. They're brutal, they keep their costs down, they don't care about the people inside. And they're dehumanizing. Oh, oh yeah. And, and, and I know down here is like, I know on the bottom floor of the, uh, of the county jails, it was all the immigrants. They were jailing the immigrants. They were down there. You know, mm -hmm. you could, you know, nowadays down, especially down in Texas, you know, they're making it so you can look at their... Uh, there, uh, you you can go up to any dark-skinned person and demand to see their their identification, and if not, they can deport you. They can throw you in jail. And, and right now, half of the people in county jails are have mental illnesses. And so, you want to know how we take care of our mentally ill in our country? We throw them in county jails. That's what happens to them. I. I just don't, uh, I don't fathom. Do, do you think it's different in Texas, which has a certain, or, or in the South, actually in general, which, well, which well, has a certain I, reputation I think, than it is in the North? Well, I think uh, Texas is especially brutal. I know uh, they often compare it with, uh, with California, matter of fact, but, but you know, like they're, they're having a, uh, um, a hunger strikes for the, against the brutality of the prisons right now in California. So, so I think it's 
widespread. The I think, yeah. yes, I think the system is widespread, the brutality. Uh, you know, for, for example, uh, 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 after I got out, we formed this little Texas jail project uh, to just advocate for the inmates and try to change conditions. And, you know, we got 254 county jails, so we're just trying to change some of them. And, and one of the only things we, we got passed, uh, believe it or not, in Texas, the last legislative session, we got a bill passed where you can no longer shackle a pregnant woman in labor to her hospital bed. And believe it or not, surprise, how many states still allow pregnant women to be shackled to their bed as they're in labor? And we got that passed that they no longer can do that in Texas. But I guarantee, you, uh, you know, and a lot of it, though, is checking, you know, having adding more stuff to make sure they actually do it. You know, well, a small victory, but a victory nevertheless. Yeah. Yes. Well, we're going to take another break now, and then I'll be back with a conclusion of our interview with Diane Wilson. And we're back. Diane, what do you think will have an influence in changing the system? You, you've taken the root of what I might call political theater. You've, you've you know, poured Cairo syrup on your head in the halls of Congress. Um, do you think this is what it takes to change the system? Tell us about oh. what, what you think are the most effective ways that we can join you. I sincerely believe that we are going to have to go much further than we've ever gone before. I, I think there's, I, I, I think it's gonna, it's gonna take a lot of, of different avenues, you know, because there's some people that do the lobbying, there's some people that are doing the same sustainability, there's some people doing, uh, you know, health impacts and things like that. But I think to really make a change is we are going to have to physically get out there. And, and I know this might alarm a few people, but I really believe we have to confront these systems head on, face to face. I think this thing about, uh, you know, having little, uh, uh, what do they call it, stakeholders meetings where we sit down and we talk with the, the, the company and they, they feed us dinner and they show us their best little thing they did and, and then they'll throw us a little two parts per million on this and, and a little four parts per million on that. And it's like the planet is in bad shape. Our home is at risk. And you know, and there are a lot of scientists who said, we're past the tipping point. <laughs> you, know, you know, you talk to some of these uh, 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 global warming uh, scientists and they're like, we, we, we have gone past the point. Mm -hmm. And the thing that is, is I'm from the Gulf Coast I am surrounded by chemical plants. I am surrounded by workers. You know, the, the deep water horizon, the dead dolphins, that was, you see it. You literally see it. And there is no hesitation. There is nothing that seems to stop anything. And, and I know I am, I am totally... Uh, 
disappointed in the political leaders and the political parties. I do not think we have time for that. And I think, uh, and, and matter of fact, uh, uh, you know, quite frankly, I know uh, October the 6th, there is a, uh, a bit of a gathering in Washington, D.C., and, and this bill is stop the machine. And quite frankly, I think we need to stop the machine. I think even elected officials who may have the best of intentions, the system is so corrupt, it will take a message and it will just change it and it will warp it and you, and it will, it, and it will not happen. Mm. Nothing has happened, even with the deep water horizon, those men that died, all of that oil out there, nothing has changed. They didn't do anything to uh, raise the cap. They didn't do anything to protect uh, future workers out there. They didn't do anything to stop and make sure there isn't more experimental drilling out there. Matter of fact, uh, Obama brought the the ban in earlier, and you know, and there's just already it. yeah, yes, and 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 so what what are we to take from that 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 these agencies, that these politicians, that these power hungry, greedy corporations are going to stop what they're doing. They haven't did it. They haven't did it at all. And I've been fighting tooth and nail for 21 years. And I literally, when I fight, I literally almost wrestle them to the ground. And I think it's going to need some very serious direct action. And I'm not talking these little demonstrations are these little. Well, I, I think one one example of what you're talking about is what happened in Egypt when basically the the whole youth, yes. eventually the yes. whole middle class, they all yes. came out in mass. That's right. That's what it needs. That's what it needs. And, uh, you know, and, and I've like I said, I've been doing this for 21 years and I've, I've learned first. You know, I did, I worked inside the box and I did what, what people tell you what you should do and what the agencies recommend you should do. And, and it's like, it doesn't work. That does not work. Maybe in a very liberal green base in a little place in Vermont, it might work. But in the, the majority of the country, it does not. And you lose your home. You see it disappear right in front of you and everybody dies of cancer and the bays are contaminated and shut down and it's like you see it you see it disappearing right in front of you and so i i am no longer just sit and willing to uh play nice about it quite frankly well i think if you can in fact just a few people with that passion that you have uh you know, that's the beginning of propagation. I, I, I interviewed Irvin Laszlo um, a few weeks ago, um, who is one of the uh, leaders of the Club of Budapest, and, and he's describing how we really are at the tipping point. And as you say, it's questionable to what extent we can stop this juggernaut in its tracks, because 
uh, our our ecological systems. It's not just global warming. It's as you say. It's the 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 water. It's the the marine life. It's uh, even agricultural life. The the killer bees and the the uh, drift. The, the 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 oh, I don't want to go on. Okay, so all of this stuff has to be put on the side of the scale of the future of humanity and people have to stop weighing everything in terms of its its monetary value its profit that's right that's right but the thing it is is like uh you you talk to any crowd of people and i know uh uh, Derek Jensen, who is with Deep Green Resistance, he's, he's did this quite a bit. And he'll he'll go to a crowd of people and he's asked them all over the all over the country. And it's like, do you really believe this culture will voluntarily stop what they are doing? And I don't think nobody and nobody believes they will stop it voluntarily. And, you know, as Fedris Douglas said, is like, you know, you, you have to demand it. You have to demand it because people in power do not want to release it. And uh, if we're going to save this planet. Absolutely. Yeah, but I'm you sorry. look at the people of Seadrift and you would think that seeing all of this devastation around them and seeing the the, the rates of of cancer and autism and stuff like that going up, that they would be ready to be mobilized. And you, you, you haven't had any response there, have you? Well, I, I've had it. Well, I, I know what, several times I really did. It was, hard, it was hard to get it, quite frankly. I know one time I did it when I took my boat out to sink it. And... I mean, to sink your shrimp boat is like a farmer burning his farm. And when I proceeded to sink that shrimp boat, there were like three boatloads of Coast Guard chasing me. And they were all over me. They were calling me a terrorist on the high seas. They were going to send me into federal penitentiary. And all those shrimpers were sitting at the docks watching what was going on out there. And for some reason, something about that action of me with the Coast Guard and trying to sink my boat, that it, it somehow or another touched the fishermen and every single one of those fishermen got in their boats and went out in the middle of the bay and started demonstrating. And, mm -hmm. and, and to demonstrate in a bay is like you're in the category of losing your boat to the Coast Guard. And so they really put things at risk, but there was something about that spontaneous action because I, I wasn't I wasn't doing it intending to get the shrimpers. I did it out of my passion and my my frustration and the anger about what they were doing to the bays and to a whole culture and to a whole way of being. And and it touched. You never know. You never know sometimes what you do, how it's gonna affect people. So I think you just don't have to worry about it. I think you just know you got to do the right thing and you just do it whether there's people there or whether there's not. 
Well, wise words have never been spoken. More wise words have not been spoken. Well done, Diane. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. How do how do people learn more about you? Uh, well, there's uh, ChelseaGreen.com. Uh, that's my publisher. And she's got an Unreasonable Woman uh, website. And you can, I mean, uh, uh, a section. And so you can go there, do Unreasonable Woman. And there's a whole list of links and uh, we, do, where you we, we have a link we have a link there on our site yeah and and also texas jail project it tells you something about the work that we do in texas county jails and also my work with the injured workers in texas on the gulf coast is texasinjuredworkers.org mm-hmm. and you can go there and uh, code pink well you can see a little bit what we do mm-hmm and you were one of the co-founders of Code Pink as well. Oh, That's yeah. a, a women's <laughs> peace activist. Group. Oh, yes, absolutely. And so you can go to codepink.org or Women for Peace. And uh, I'm always, always got my foot in there. Yes. <laughs> oh, Diane, I just wish you strength and success. And may your words be heard far and wide. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for the weekly musical interlude by the Positive Music Association. The PMA is a growing number of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. Each week we feature songs from members of the PMA with music styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, all with positive messages designed to uplift, heal or enlighten. This week, we're featuring a song by Karen Drucker called The Power of Women. After the song, I'll tell you where you can find out more about Karen's music and more about the PMA. Enjoy the music. All the 
was The Power of Women by Karen Drucker from Mill Valley, California. To find out more about Karen's music, go to www.karendrucker.com. That's K-A-R-E-N-D-R-U-C-K-E-R.com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that's our show for this week. Please join us next week when my guest will be Barton Siever. We'll be talking about his book, For Cod and Country, a fabulous cookbook featuring simple, delicious, and sustainable recipes. You can learn more about all our guests on ncreview.com. I'm Miriam Knight for NCR Radio, wishing you a week full of whatever makes you feel good. Goodbye. Goodbye.